thank you all for being here. Uh, my name is Michael Pregen. I'm a senior fellow here at the Hudson Institute. Thanks for coming despite the rain, despite the holidays, and uh, despite the topic. Uh, appreciate it. I'd like to introduce our panel today. Um, of course, we have Catherine Herridge from Fox News, who's their intelligence uh, correspondent, who's agreed to do this. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome. Um, Mike Duran, senior fellow here at the Hudson Institute, who used to work in the Bush uh, National Security Council during the, the height of the Iraq War. We have to his left Tom Jocelyn from the Free, uh, Foundation for the Freedom of Democracy, who's been tracking Sunni extremism since the, uh, I guess, pre-9-11. And then to his left, uh, Bill Raggio, who's been covering Afghanistan, doing great work in the long uh, war journal. And uh, they've all agreed to be here. We may not agree on all these topics, so it should be a pretty good panel. And, uh, and Catherine has yellow and orange cards to make sure everybody stays, uh, stays where they're supposed to be. And with that, we'll go ahead and uh, start the panel. And also, C-SPAN audience, thank you to our C-SPAN audience here today. And of course, our audience that made it here despite the weather. Well, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us. It's uh, 17 years uh, after 9-11. And before I open it up to the discussion, I just wanted to share an idea with you uh, that's really been with me for almost 30 years. I began covering terrorism uh, in the early 90s. At that time, I worked at ABC News as a correspondent. Uh, and this was really the height of the IRA's mainland bombing campaign in London at that time. And I was given a piece of advice by a British intelligence officer about terrorism. And I think no truer words were ever spoken about this threat. And this is why I wanted to share it with you. Uh, today. He said, Catherine, terrorism is like water. It takes the path of least resistance. It's a thinking enemy. You move one way, and it moves another. And I think this uh, more than adequately describes the journey that this country has been on uh, over the last 17 years uh, since 9-11. I'm going to moderate a panel discussion here this morning, and then I'm going to also open it up for your questions, uh, probably the last uh, 20 minutes or so uh, of the discussion. And I'd like to begin um, really where it all started uh, in Afghanistan. And I'd like to begin with Tom uh, Jocelyn. Just give us your uh, estimate of where uh, al-Qaeda stands uh, in the AFPAC region today. Well, it, it's, a, it's a complicated thing to assess because um, unlike ISIS, we always like to say that ISIS is the organization that wants to stab you right in the throat, whereas al-Qaeda is the one that wants to stab you in the back. In other words, they don't really want to tell you where they're operating or, or the extent of their operations. They don't advertise themselves the way ISIS does. And this, uh, you know, Bill and I argued for years with the U.S. military and the intelligence community because they kept saying for years that there's only 50 to 100 al-Qaeda guys in Afghanistan at any given time. And Bill, all Bill did was he just looked at their own press releases and their own reporting on the, on the actual war fighting in Afghanistan. And, he, and he, what he would show is, well, you're keeping the number 50 to 100, but you just killed 29 yesterday, and you killed 30 the day before, and you killed four, you're going to kill 40 tomorrow. You know, this obviously doesn't make any sense. And basically our point on that, that al-Qaeda has been underestimated in South Asia, sort of um, was proven right in October 2015 when the U.S. military and our Afghan allies launched an operation, a four-day operation, against the largest al-Qaeda training camp in the history of Afghanistan. I want that to sink in for a second. We're not talking about 1999, 2000, early 2001. We're talking October 2015. The U.S. military and our Afghan allies launched a four-day raid against a approximately 30-square-mile training facility for al-Qaeda. Make a long story short, al-Qaeda is still very much in the game in Afghanistan and Pakistan. 
They didn't release a single image or a single video from that training camp, by the way. If ISIS has a guy, you know, in a porta potty in the middle of the desert, they've got they fly the flag and they say we've got a province. Meanwhile, you've got you've got a whole huge town, a virtual town in southern Afghanistan, and not a single recognition from Al Qaeda that that was going on. And that's been the game here all along for Al Qaeda. They've expanded their base. There's no question that ISIS grew and mushroomed and, and sort of overshadowed Al Qaeda in some ways. No no doubt about it. But Al Qaeda is still very much alive. It's still very much an organization. They still have an, an infrastructure, and they're actually fighting in more countries today than they were on 9/11. Bill, what are your thoughts vis-a-vis, uh, -vis especially uh, the border region with Pakistan? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, concur with Tom. That estimate, you know, of course, the U.S. military, after raiding that camp, had to adjust the estimate up to 100 to 300, which we, of course, consider to be um, probably well underestimated as well. Al Qaeda isn't is uh, in Afghanistan act acting as advisors and trainers and force multipliers for the, for the Taliban. Um, you could see their hand. It's a, a hidden hand in Afghanistan. And, and they still maintain a significant, significant presence in, inside Pakistan, and not just in Pakistan's tribal areas. Um, we've seen there was a Washington report, uh, Post report within, I believe, in the last year where they talked about al-Qaeda having possibly a, a, around 2,000 operatives in the city of Karachi alone. This is one argument that I've always, when the US was launching air drone strikes against uh, Al-Qaeda and, and allied forces such as uh, Islamic Movement Uzbekistan, the Turkestan Islamic Party, uh, the Taliban slash Haqqani network, they, they focused on this, on a, a kill box, basically, in North and South Waziristan. I, I was the first person to begin tracking these strikes. 95% of the strikes took place in North and South Waziristan. And one of the things I argued against was, that's great. I mean, that certainly is the tip of the spear for al-Qaeda's military operations. But in the process, we're ignoring al-Qaeda's operations in Peshawar, in Karachi, in Islamabad, in, you know, it, pick, pick a Pakistani city, and you're very likely to have al-Qaeda there. Where did we kill Osama bin Laden? In, in Abbottabad, in, in a small city in Pakistan. Where do I think if we actually wind up finding Zawahiri, he'll be in another small city in Pakistan, in, in Punjab, or, or Afghanistan. Or, yeah. Yes, it's possible as well. He could be in Afghanistan, given the strength of the Taliban. This is another thing that we've tracked, is the Taliban control in Afghanistan. The New York Times uh, used our data just uh, uh, on uh, Saturday in a report. And then what we're showing is the Taliban controls about 11% of Afghanistan's districts and, and contests another uh, 50%. So you have more than half of Afghanistan slipping under the control of the Taliban. And this is where and al-Qaeda running training camps. That camp in, in uh, Kandahar and Shorbakh that Tom discussed, that's not the only camp. I've seen reports of us raiding al-Qaeda camps in other provinces as well. We didn't, you know, we didn't even know that camp was, was in existence until we raided a, a previous camp in Paktia province several months prior. That was the only way we were keyed in. And we're in Afghanistan. It's actionable intelligence. You usually find out that when you do a raid, you find out information right. leads you to another raid. And, and so we're in Afghanistan, and we missed a massive al-Qaeda training camp because of the Taliban strength. This Taliban-al-Qaeda relationship is as strong, if not stronger today, than at any point in, in the history of this relationship. And unfortunately, what we're hearing from US officials is that um, that they're not connected, and th that's incorrect. It's being used as a justification to withdraw from Afghanistan, and um, they'll be held to pay if, if that indeed happens.
Let's talk a little bit more about al-Qaeda because in 2011 with um, uh, the raid on Osama bin Laden, the conventional view was that the leadership had taken a major hit and that uh, his number two Zawahiri was really not the same type of charismatic um, leader. So my, my question, and I'll bring you in here now, is you know, what role is Zawahiri playing and to what extent is Osama bin Laden's son, Hamza bin Laden, being groomed as the next leader of the organization? So, the, so the, uh, the one thing that I would say about what Al-Qaeda has been able to do and how they've been able to persist is they, keep, they have this permissive environment. And it's not based on anything that Zawahiri is doing. It's based on relationships like uh, both uh, Tom and Bill described with the Taliban. Taliban provi provides a permissive environment. Uh, in, in other places, uh, other groups provide a permissive environment for Al-Qaeda and other groups like that. But Zawahiri's role now is diminished. Uh, Jelani doesn't listen to Zawahiri. Uh, Al-Qaeda at large doesn't listen to Zawahiri. They're trying to groom a new leader, and it likely would be Hamza or someone else more like a Zarqawi-like figure. Zawahiri, and we may have disagreements here, Zawahiri continued, <laughs> continued to, to recommend uh, to Osama bin Laden the, the admission of other groups into Al-Qaeda, continued to recommend high-profile high attacks uh, that Osama bin Laden would, would shoot down. So Zawahiri, in my opinion, was the good idea ferry for al-Qaeda. Uh, this is a good idea, and Osama bin Laden would say no. And the way these things would travel is Zawahiri would send it to him. It would take 30 days to get to UBL. Then it would take UBL about 10 days to answer and give it to a courier 30 days back to Zawahiri. So you're looking at about a 60-day, mm -hmm. at best, transfer of information. And Again, Zawahiri was never able to, to get Jabal al-Nusra to counter ISIS in rhetoric in, in Syria. Uh, and we never did it either. We never said that, you know, there is no caliphate in Syria because Jabal al-Nusra, al-Qaeda's affiliate, says there isn't. Mm -hmm. And Jabal al-Nusra has always been more stringent on recruiting people. ISIS would take anyone. So to your point about uh, ISIS uh, planting a flag in a port -a potty and calling it a province, yeah, they'll take anyone, but Jabal al-Nusra has, has a, a more stringent criteria for joining the organization, something that Zawahiri got away from, started allowing anyone to try to enter al-Qaeda. So that's where you see these breaks with other uh, Sunni groups from traditional al-Qaeda senior leadership because there really isn't. They're senior leadership, but they're not necessarily being listened to. And that's why you see these But it does seem like Hamza bin Laden, the son, is being groomed. He's got that name recognition. And I think one of the big revelations since uh, the bin Laden raid in 2011 is that there really was a relationship between al-Qaeda and Iran. And this was something that was really minimized. Or, Tom, I think as you like to say, people disconnect the dots on that relationship. Yeah, you know, it, this is one of the more complex stories. Um, and, you know, Zawahiri, from our model, by the way, he's very much still in charge, and there's a lot of data about who's report, uh, reporting to him from West Africa all the way to South Asia. But um, one of the ways that they communicate with the outside world from South Asia, from Afghanistan and Pakistan, is this core pipeline that runs through Iran. And what's interesting about this is every time we bring this up, you'll hear people in this town who sort of, they sort of try and impugn your motives and say you're calling for war with Iran or something like that or you have some ulterior motive for bringing this up. I always bring this binder with me because I love doing this. This is my prop for the day. <laughs> this is my, my prop for the day. My prop for the day um, are the Treasury De Department designations and State Department designations and announcements from the Obama administration. This is now the Obama Treasury and State Departments explaining that, in their, their, in their words, 
Iran is the leading state sponsor of terrorism in the world today. By exposing Iran's secret deal with al-Qaeda, allowing it to funnel funds and operatives through its territory, we are illuminating yet another aspect of Iran's unmatched support for terrorism. Um, they, what they described this as, the Obama administration did, was the core pipeline or core facilitation pipeline for al-Qaeda exists in Iran under an agreement between the Iranian regime and al-Qaeda. Now, what's interesting is every time we talk about this or report on this, when you see press reports on or you see analysis of this, what they have to leave out is that this was the official position of the Obama administration as they were pushing for a nuclear accord with Iran, okay? Right? So this isn't coming from some warmongering neoconservative folks, right? This is coming from the Obama administration over a period of years from 2011 to 2016 over and over and over again, right? But when you see these articles written on this topic, that is conveniently left out. You see, you don't see that that's put in that says, actually what, for example, Long War Journal, our team is saying, isn't any different than what the Obama administration was saying about this. In fact, we're saying exactly the same thing, right? And this is one of the ways that they communicate with the outside world. It's, it's, a, it's is, as they said, a core pipeline. This allows them to communicate with different entities. And if you go through the designations very carefully, all these series of designations, what you see is that actually the Al-Qaeda senior leadership is in fact maintaining command and control over various different branches around the world, all the way from West Africa to East Africa, North Africa. You know, there was a leadership disagreement in Syria, for example, where there was a big kerfuffle over how they were going to, you know, sort of have their arm there sort of raised. We've covered that in detail. But guess what? There are all sorts of people in Syria who are listening to the leadership command. In fact, they're very loud about it. So I'm in Al-Zal here today just to make sure we're very clear about this. If you just did a very back-of-the-envelope calculation, there are tens of thousands of jihadis who are openly loyal to him through the chain of command around the globe. This is one of the things that we have to document constantly because it's not even understood to this day. All you have to do is go through what the groups are saying, the organization, match that with primary source documents, the terrorist designations, other evidence, and this is still, the Al-Qaeda network is still very much alive and still has leadership. And just real quick on Hamza, Hamza absolutely is being groomed for a future leadership position. He's somebody who is, um, you know, somebody they like to use the Bin Laden name. But we think, um, we're, we've been trying to confirm something for a long time, uh, that we think he's actually playing more of a role in the insurgency in Afghanistan than people even realize. But we don't know. I wanted to just bring you in because you served in the Bush administration and you've got that uh, advantage of the sort of historical perspective and context. When you look at what we're talking about today, is this what you imagined more than a decade ago? <laughs> no. Uh, no, the, the never-ending quality of it is what really strikes me. And I, I mean, I think if you took the senior leaders um, of the Bush administration, the Obama administration, and now the Trump administration, all, just the, the top officials, and put them together in a room and ask each one of them, um, who are we fighting? What are we fighting about? And what does victory look like? Forget about strategy, just those basic questions. You'd have as many answers as you had people in the room. Um, and then if you go to the next level and say, well, what, what should our strategy be? You'd have almost as many answers. And that's only among our national security elite. I mean, if you, if you open it up to the wider society, you get uh, so many more voices. And that, I think, is, the, is really, I mean, when I think about it in the long stretch, that's the the core problem is that we don't have a clear vision of what the role of the United States in the Middle East and, and, and um, what we used to call the greater Middle East is. Um, in, the, in the Bush administration, for, I, I, I was in the White House from um, 2005 to 7, and I, I thought we had a very clear idea. Looking back around, I think it wasn't a very good idea, uh, but it was a clear idea. It was that our, our strategy was to fight nexus, the nexus of uh, terrorist organizations with global reach, terror-supporting states, and WMD. 
And that we wanted to prevent nexus. That was the, the goal. The, pr the problem with it is a, as a, it's, it's not a bad idea. I think it makes a lot of sense in terms of what the big threat to the United States is. It's just too abstract. Uh, and it's not something that you can sell clearly to the American people that they're going to support uh, uh, that they're going to support over time. And you know, your question about uh, your observation about Iran to me is the, is the key one. The, the, um, we, we set up after 9-11 this uh, magnificent counterterrorism uh, bureaucracy and apparatus, which is very good at, at, at disrupting and degrading the terrorist enemy. Um, and the and the counterterrorism uh, the counterterrorism uh, careerists they have a very clear vision of what the United States should be doing in, in in the world, but it's a narrow one. And the larger question of regional order and how counterterrorism fits into regional order is really unclear to everyone. And the, and the Iran question is the central question there because what's happened in in Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and elsewhere is that as we have prioritized the fight against uh, Sunni radicalism, we've kind of turned a blind eye to the rise of Iran. So we've, been, we've, done a, we've done a fairly good job at degrading and disrupting, but at the same time, we have elevated this actor, which, which is supporting al-Qaeda and wants to undermine the United States. We're, we've been leaving open, or we, or I shouldn't say we've been supporting, but we have turned a blind eye to what they're doing. Sure, sure, the, 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 the trading Al-Qaeda for Iranian influence in Iraq, for trading ISIS for Iranian influence in Syria. We continue to, like you said, focus on Sunni extremism and use these caveats saying that we're working with non-traditional allies or we're working with a coalition that Baghdad puts together uh, to fight ISIS. And then we come up with these narratives, and that's why we're at 17 years with this, with this fight. We've run the Afghanistan campaign like Dan Snyder runs the Washington Redskins. We change a team out every year in hopes of a Super Bowl, and we don't get one. We get an enemy that continues to develop a playbook. We have a very strategic enemy in the Taliban, in the Haqqani group, in Pakistani uh, Taliban, in our allies in quotations such as the ISI. And then, and then we have this issue in, in Iraq and, and Syria where we're actually empowering IRGC Quds Force proxy forces in both Iraq and Syria to defeat Daesh, because ISIS is the most important thing. Well, Al-Qaeda was the most important thing after 9-11. And then getting out became the most important thing in 2009. And then we were back in Afghanistan with a surge, only to tell people to do very difficult things, and then tell them, do very difficult things, put yourself in jeopardy, put yourself at risk, and we're leaving in six months. And trust is based on frequency and proximity. The more you can reach out to the United States, the more you can grab the United States, the more you trust the United States. When a commander goes into an area uh, every month and asks the villagers to, to fight back against the Taliban, to fight back against al-Qaeda, to fight back against ISIS, to fight back against whoever, and then leaves, the first thing that happens is al-Qaeda comes into that neighborhood, ISIS comes into that neighborhood, the Taliban comes in that neighborhood and says, what did the Americans ask you to do? And in each case, the the, well, we, 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 we left stay behind so we could watch al-Qaeda come back in Iraq so we could actually target them. But in cases where we don't leave stay behinds, that, that tribal sheikh or that person that's engaged by al-Qaeda, ISIS, the Taliban, whatever group is morphing, basically says, I told them I wouldn't help them and I'm not going to help them because I realize you're the permanent entity here and the United States is temporary. Uh, we've been at, in Afghanistan now for, for 17 years. 
telling the Afghanis every year that we're only there for a little while. We should have just said we're going to be here for 17 years. We would have killed the Taliban. We would have killed al-Qaeda. We would have built trust. We would have built something that had uh, the capability to fight back if they believed we were actually going to be there for 17 years. We're in Iraq now. Um, I'm a veteran of the first Gulf War. My first entry into Iraq was 05, and then I stayed there until 2010 in some capacity. And the whole thing is we now have 18-year-old Americans in Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan who are one year old on the anniversary of 9-11, on the, after the attacks. They're now fighting in these wars because we've told our enemy and we've told our partners that we are only going to be there for a year. We're only going to be there for 18 months. And we have to keep going back and reestablishing trust. And each time we try to do it, it's been degraded. Our, our leverage is degraded. Uh, whether or not our allies trust us is degraded. If you look at the situation in Syria, you now have the YPG wondering if we can be a trusted ally. You have the KDP Peshmerga in Iraq wondering if we can be a trusted ally. We now have uh, other, other allies in Afghanistan wondering if they can trust us because we're asking everyone to do very difficult things and we keep telling them, do all these things and we're leaving. So um, just to sort of take a bit of a departure, so we're at war in how many different countries effectively right now with terrorism? I mean, it's more than a half a dozen, right? So my question is, what does the intelligence tell us about what the next year to two years is, is going to look like? Tom, why don't you uh, come in? Well, a couple things. W one of the areas where we've disagreed with the Trump administration, we've, we have a number of areas, but one of the areas we disagree with the Trump administration is sort of this push to declare ISIS basically defeated and, and sort of a spent force, and because they take away the territory, it's all gone. And you, you see now in the recent last couple of months, there's, and this, by the way, mimics sort of the rhetoric, ironically enough, of the Obama administration before it, which was saying that jihadism and al-Qaeda was a shadow of its former self and decimated and on the run. Now you're seeing a lot of the same sort of, even the same exact catchphrases, despite how many times we warned them, used to describe ISIS coming out of the Trump administration. And um, you know, recently you've seen some pushback from this from different intelligence sources, including a UN report that came out. Uh, which, by the way, uh, that same UN report said that Zawahiri is exercising control over al-Qaeda's global network through two senior al-Qaeda leaders in Iran. That's according to the UN, by the way. Um, so in any event, but that same report talked about how ISIS is, um, is, is very much still in the game. You know, in Iraq and Syria, they, you know, some of these estimates are as high as 20 to 30,000 fighters still in Iraq and Syria. Now, we, we find this sort of, um, I don't even know, I don't want to say funny because none of this is really funny, but it, it's really... It's stupid, because here's the point. Going back to September 2014, when the bombing campaign began against ISIS on the Obama administration, you go back to the CNN reporting on what the CIA was saying at the time about ISIS's strength in Iraq and Syria, okay? And it was 20 to 30,000 fighters. And now here we have the Inspector General report come out of the DOD. The UN reports this and says, oh, yeah, they've got 20 to 30,000 fighters in Iraq and Syria. Well, something doesn't add up here, folks, right? We've been bombing the heck out of these two countries for years now, and yet we still have the same overall force structure according to these, these sources. We think that part of the problem is, and this, is, this goes to our disconnected dots point, we think that there's, there's so much bad analysis and not getting down to the root facts of the situation that these assessments are always wrong because they don't really actually know how many fighters they have. They don't know how many fighters they had at any given time. And they probably underestimated the peak of ISIS when all these foreign fighters were coming in by the thousands every month into their strongholds. Um, so ISIS is not dead. They're, they're waging a prolific insurgency campaign right now in Iraq and Syria. In August alone, I think we counted 211, 220 some odd operations claimed in Iraq and Syria. 
Um, that's just Iraq and Syria. Of course, they commit bombings all the time in Afghanistan. They're active in North Africa and West Africa. They're active in Yemen. You know, they're active in Southeast Asia, where they absorbed some different um, local jihadi groups. ISIS is still an international organization. It's still alive. It's not defeated. But there's this push among some of the, the political class, sort of, and, and the Trump administration in particular, to try and say, well, it's all over. Well, that just, we just keep going right back to the same thing, where you want to prematurely declare victory. And I'm, just, to, just to put a, a, a sort of another point on this, at the same time, if you look at the, the same sort of reporting that comes out of ODNI, or the UN or others, and some is, a lot of supporting which we actually agree with their, their assessments. Al-Qaeda is fighting in more countries today. You have Al-Qaeda commanders and leaders who are openly loyal to Al-Qaeda senior leadership everywhere from Mali and the surrounding countries where they've executed. We have a, we have a young guy who works for us named Caleb Weiss, who all he does is, is um, track how many operations there are in West Africa. It's stunning. And they are very, very loud and proud about the fact that they're, they're, they are Al-Qaeda. They were just designated the other day by the Treasury Department all the way through North Africa, where they've sort of hid their assets a little bit. Yemen, the UN just said that Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, which was, for, which was formed by the aide-de-camp to Osama bin Laden originally, okay, and is led to this day by Al-Qaeda veterans trained in Afghan camps. The UN was saying that this AQAP may have as many as six to 7,000 fighters in Yemen alone after all these years, right? We don't know how many fighters they have, but it certainly isn't a spent force. All the way in Syria, even after this leadership kerfuffle in Syria, we've been tracking the groups and reorganization, who's announcing their loyalty. Al-Qaeda still has thousands of fighters in Syria. So if you go around the, if you go around the map, you can see that Al-Qaeda is still very much an international organization as well. And just to, just to wrap this up, the way we, we talk about this is we have, we have two different jihadi revolutions ongoing. Okay? One is the Shiite side, which is led by Iran, which has expanded its base and has expanded its operations greatly, which these gentlemen can tell you all about, in ways over the years which has been very destabilizing and damaging for American interests and our allies. On the other side, on the Sunni side, you have a Sunni jihadi revolution that's, that's actually, there are two competitors. You have Al-Qaeda and ISIS competing, and they, their market share varies in different geographic regions, but that overall sort of jihadi revolution is still much greater than it was on 9-11. Just want to talk about our, our intelligence footprint in these countries where we're trying to assess how strong the enemy is. Uh, we don't have the network we used to have. And why is that? Well, because we, 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 there's an over-reliance on signals intelligence intercept, and there's an over-reliance on human reports. But the human reports are no longer traditional CIA operatives, case officers, DIA case officers. It's US government engagement with Iraqi politicians in Iraq, for example, or with uh, party officials in Syria. So what you're literally getting is a conversation between a US general and an Iraqi general a U.S. government official and an Iraqi government official, and that's being called an exum, a human exum. So you basically have senior U.S. official meets with senior leader of the Iraqi government and says this is happening. So you're getting narratives. So the, the, I want to kind of focus on this, on this uh, in Iraq 2009. In Iraq 2009, we had the out of the cities campaign where we basically took everybody out of the cities and brought them back to bases. Our intelligence footprint went black. We couldn't tell what was going on. We had to actually rely on open source reporting in newspapers to actually find, find out what was going on. Our SIGINT was compromised because we thought for some reason Iraqis didn't read news, newspapers. They didn't read the LA Times to find out what our capability was. And the State Department actually issued phones to Iraqi senior officials. And when you challenge the National Security Agency to find out whether or not this SIGINT report was from a selector we had given them, meaning the cell phone, they would say, of course, of course it's that Iraqi. Iraqi official and crossed their arms. And I said, well, does it start with a 913? And if it started with a 913, it was a State Department issued phone, which meant we gave 
Iraqi politicians a PR platform to tell us who they weren't when we knew who they were. So when we... Sorry, you mean they, they knew... That we were listening. We were listening to those phones, yeah. so they said things on those lines that we would... Yeah, you, you would go into a conversation, uh, you know, with a senior uh, U.S. official or a general and say, sir, this, this person is a sectarian actor. And they would say, no, they're not. Uh, I had dinner with them last night. They said they weren't. And then we have the SIGM report that also says they're not. <laughs> because you basically could see the Iraqi politician on the phone with somebody saying, keep talking. They've almost got it. Tell them what your name is. <laughs> um, we also saw this with the Iran deal. When, when, when we were working to, to talk to Congress about whether or not Iran was cheating, you'd constantly get, well, I've seen the SIGINT that they're complying. And I would ask the question, did they identify themselves in the SIGINT uh, report? They did. Did they tell you where they were working? They did. Did they tell you they were complying with the JCPOA? They did. They're messaging you. <laughs> And this is one of our biggest problems. When, when you have the math, uh, you know, at 20 to 30,000 estimated ISIS fighters in 2014, basically not able to account for a third of the group. Not able to account for a third of the group. And now, we're hearing 20 to 30,000 again. It's somewhere between what the Iraqis say are 100 to 300, and what the UN and our, and our intelligence uh, agencies are saying, 20 and 30,000. Somewhere in between is that amount. Uh, it's, it's dangerous regardless because, as Tom says, I, ISIS has moved to the Al-Qaeda 2.0 model where they are recruiting, they're conducting high-profile attacks, their activity in Saladin, Diyala, Kirkuk, Nineveh province, and now they're threatening Baghdad, is, is at the point where this is, this is Al-Qaeda-like violence in Iraq that we're, we're not calling it that because ISIS isn't planting flags anymore in Iraq. Because they've learned that unless you can shoot down a U.S. aircraft, you shouldn't plant a flag because we will take back that territory. Um, the intel footprint, we're over-reliance on SIGIN and HUMA, and it's not spies or collectors getting the intel to our government. It's US officials talking to government officials about the situation in Iraq and Syria. And I've said this many times. I've never met a US general that said things got worse on their watch in Iraq or Syria. And I've never, never met a politician that, th that says that things got worse on their watch. And that's one of the biggest problems. That's why we have a blackout. That's why we didn't see the protests in Iraq coming. That's why we didn't see Sadr winning the revolution or, or the election. That's why we didn't see Russia going into Syria. That's why we didn't see ISIS. The argument and issue was, let's let Hezbollah and Jabhat al-Nusra kill, kill themselves, kill each other in Syria and not worry about it. Well, that morphed into ISIS. That morphed into Iran creating new uh, proxy militias in Syria. And now we're hearing the same thing in Iraq. Let's uh, Let's let the Shia militias, the IRGC Quds Force militias, kill the remnants of ISIS. And it just doesn't work that way. So, Tom, why, if you accept the argument that the intelligence isn't better, and this was one of the primary focuses after 9-11, why do you think that is? And how do you think you can sort of turn the ship to improve the, intel the accuracy of the intelligence picture? You want to answer, Michael? Oh. Sorry, Mike. Sorry. Um, I, I think that... Uh, you know, Mike uh, put his finger on it, and that you, we have to be involved on the ground. And why, um, and why are why aren't we more risk because averse? Because I mean, risk well, and, and but we have to we have to recognize, I think, that um, that the American public isn't going to support uh, the kind of you know the, the kind of 2008 <laughs> sur surge level of uh, uh, of American participation, um, and it goes back to my. Uh, my point about having to have a picture of what a regional order, because 
We are the only actor in the Middle East for whom um, Al-Qaeda and ISIS are the number one enemy. Everybody else in the region is asking, after ISIS and Al-Qaeda are defeated, who takes their place? And what's my, what's my, what's my status in that new order going to look like? And that's why we don't find anybody on the ground who is really willing to work closely with any of the major actors. I mean, we, we aligned with the, with the y, YPG, PYD, the, the, the Syrian Kurds, um, uh, against, uh, against ISIS to destroy ISIS in Syria. But they did that in order to borrow power from us because it, elevate, it gives them leverage over Turkey. Mm -hmm. they're, not, they're, not in the, they're not in the fight against ISIS to defeat ISIS. They're in the fight against ISIS to, to make an alliance with the, with, right. with, with, with the United right. States. And that's typical of, of, of everybody. So I think that, um, uh, that we're, we're not going to get the kind of traction. First of all, we're, I don't think we ever defeat this enemy. I think, I, I think that, we, um, that we, keep it, we keep him or them. I mean, it's not even one enemy. We keep them on their back feet. We keep them disrupted. We, we degrade them uh, and so on. We have to accept that that is the best we're going poss to possibly do unless we have a massive sort of George W. Bush-style invasion of Iraq where we can actually dominate everything on the ground. And we're, we're, we clearly are not going to do that. The American public, left and right, doesn't want that. So then we have to ask, well, who can be the second level proxies of the United States. I mean, proxies that are not as good as American forces, but, uh, but, uh, but as good as we can get, who can build an order in which these guys will be on their, uh, on, on their back feet. That's the key strategic question. I have my own answers to that. So, so what, but, so what but do you those think are, it takes? I, 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 think it, I think it takes um, putting together that we have to think, first of all, in terms of states. That, because the, the whole post 9-11 discourse has focused our attention on um, ideologies and networks, which is important. I'm not trying to say it's not. But I think strategically, we have to focus on states. Who are the states in the region who will build an order that is reasonably in keeping with our, with, with our interests? And we have to start there and then move, at, and then move toward the, the networks and the organizations. If we go right in for the networks and the organizations and we leave that statement, we say, well, we'll figure all that out later. Remember, the, the, the surge was predicated on the idea we defeat ISIS uh, uh, on the ground, and, uh, I mean, Al-Qaeda on the ground, and then we worry about the external support. Right? First of all, we, 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 we stabilize the, 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 the domestic Iraqi situation. Then we worry about Iran and Syria and, and, uh, and so on. So we didn't do anything about the external actors. Um, and then lo and behold, the next administration came in. We pulled out, and the external actors are there, um, uh, are, are there taking our place and creating, once again, these kind of safe havens, right. intentionally or unintentionally, these safe havens for the, for, the, uh, um, for the terrorist organization. So I think, for me, the starting point is with the states and the order. What's the best possible order we could come up with in, in the Middle East and work, toward the, and, and work toward that? I want to bring Bill in. So, you know, launching off that point, what does the best possible order look like between Afghanistan and Pakistan? Yes. I agree with Michael in the sense we do have to deal with the state, and we have to deal with that external actor. And I think that's been a major failing. And I think Pakistan is the perfect example of, of this failing. Pakistan, ostensibly, is our ally um, in the region. And yet, the, the Pakistani government, the ISI, the military, the, in, um, ISI is the Inter-Service Intelligence Directorate, which is 
military um, intelligence or is the intelligence for the uh, Pakistani military. They're they're funding the Taliban. They're providing safe haven for the, for the Taliban inside Pakistan, um, providing advice and intelligence, all of these things. And yet, for 17 years, uh, we've treated Pakistan as an ally. Pakistan's a major NATO, uh, non-NATO uh, ally. It's uh, most favored nation status. It's uh, a trade partner for the United States. And yet, they're they're sponsoring killing of American and Western troops. And they're derailing the U.S. effort inside Afghanistan. So yes, in Afghanistan, you need security internally. You need to build the governance. And, and this is one place where we are engaged, where this type of thing should be easy. But it isn't because we haven't had continuity of, of strategy. With, so President Bush was working to build the Afghan government. President Obama, he said he wanted to withdraw from Afghanistan by the end of his second term. So he gave the Taliban a timeline, and then the Pakistani state a timeline, which they took advantage of. And, and, and this administration is signaling that it wants out of Afghanistan as well. So how can we stabilize Afghanistan if we can't even commit to it? Our, our failure to commit to, to fights that we begin is a massive weakness. And don't just think this is a problem in Afghanistan. This is something that Russia, that China, that North Korea, that our enemies look at and see as a major weakness us, and they see ways to exploit it. So in the case of, let's say, stabilizing Afghanistan, unfortunately, what we have there is not nearly enough to help it, and we're not doing what needs to be done in Pakistan. I think the Trump administration made the right decision to cut off aid to Pakistan, the military aid. Um, that's a good start. But I, I'm, I think in 2011, I remember I did a panel at Heritage, with, uh, uh, and I argued, it's not enough that Pakistan's a state sponsor of terrorism and that we need to start treating as it such. And on one side, the Republican advisor and the other side, the Democrat advisor, sat there and said, no, nah, we just need to keep giving Pakistan money and hope they change their ways. It's like giving a drug addict drugs and saying, I hope they quit one day. Building They're not. And, and this is the problem with, and you know, we need to start getting serious. We need to start designating individuals. But work your way from the bottom up. Great, we cut off the military assistance. Start talking about cutting off civilian assistance. The Trump administration's doing this with the the uh, PLO, closing the embassy, Palestinian, or the you know cutting off aid. Let's see how how that starts working with Pakistan. You can start designating individuals. You can start um, restricting travel. You can start um, you know cutting off trade in certain areas. Work your way up to that major non-NATO ally status, and maybe consider treating Pakistan for what it is a state sponsor of terrorism. But in, until we show we're serious, until we show we're committed, we can't. We can't. We're never going to stabilize these states. We're sending, you know, Michael, Michael is correct. I mean, we're sending all of the wrong messages to our allies because we don't have continuity of, of strategy, of goals across administrations. We want to disengage from wars, and um, that's fine. I mean, look, I'll be honest with you with Afghanistan. I think we should either decide what we, whether we're going to commit to Afghanistan or get out, but let's let's face it, getting out has a cost. It has a very real cost, and that cost will be a major victory for Al Qaeda. They are going to hold that up, and there's a whole bunch of um, uh, apocalyptic religious arguments that they're going to make to show how their success. You know, first in the Khorasan, then in the Levant. That's that whole thing. We have to be prepared for that if we really want one out of Afghanistan, and we have to be prepared to watch Al Qaeda march in Jalalabad. And, and Kandahar City and places like that, and show how they defeated the Americans. Um, if we're willing to 
um, to uh, to accept those losses, uh, accept those images, then you know, then that's what should be done. But again, I, I'm I'm a believer we should be we, we're not fighting smartly. We haven't been smiting, fighting smartly since the beginning of this conflict, and and it's hard to even talk about what outcomes might look at until we get until we just get it right. Sure. I mean, it's uh, it's called the war on somethingism for a reason, and it's it's the new normal. Unfortunately, we will continue to to say we're fighting this iteration of Al Qaeda, this iteration of ISIS, with with new dynamics. Uh, the Syria problem illustrates this. We're in Syria, and we haven't been invited in. We're in Syria to defeat ISIS. Russia's in Syria to prop up the Assad regime. Iran's in Syria to threaten Israel. And 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 we're we're in Syria. Uh, to defeat ISIS, and yet, like you said, we're, we have this bumper st sticker campaign where we're saying ISIS is defeated, and, and the president wants to run on this in 2020, and he, he risks being in the same situation Obama was in when he said Al-Qaeda's on the run and Detroit is back, and being blamed for the rise of ISIS. If you get out too early, if you don't do this right. Um, the, the issue with Iraq is we're now in a situation where the winning parties in Iraq are asking the United States to leave. They're asking the United States military to get out. And it keeps incubating these existential threats, uh, ISIS, ISIS 2.0, ISIS 3.0. But now a new added element, the IRGC militias want a broader role. They don't want to just be a, a, a local threat to the United States. They want to be a, an international threat to the United States. So we may find ourselves in a situation where we are in Iraq having been disinvited by Baghdad, facing a new Sunni threat that keeps growing in the northern Middle East. And I say the northern Middle East because there used to be 20 million Sunnis in Iraq and Syria combined before this ISIS campaign. Now, there are, there are less than, I would, I would say, what, about 5 million? There's 3.2 million left in Idlib that are probably getting ready to get pushed into the refugee population. Um, and in Iraq, you know, half the population just started coming back from refugee camps to cities that have been destroyed. So we're going to face these new threats and this policy of all is well in Iraq. And it's something we hear. We, you don't even hear Iraq mentioned in the Iran conversation. When we talk about Iran, we say we want to stop Iran's influence in Syria, Lebanon, and Yemen, and we leave out Iraq. The reason Iran has this, this level of influence and this capability in Syria is because of Iraq, because they've co-opted the Iraqi security forces. They now have this group called the Hashid al-Shabi, or the People's Mobilization Units, that just won an election. They came in second to Muqtad al-Sadr, another IRG Quds force and Lebanese-created militia, Jaysh al-Mehdi, that used to kill Americans, that is now seen as the moderate face of, of Iraq. And Muqtad al-Sadr is asking for the immediate exit of U.S. troops. The Fatah party, which is the IRG Quds Force militia party, is asking for the immediate exit of U.S. troops. Prime Minister Maliki, somebody that our administration, General Petraeus, General Rodierno, Brett McGurk, have all said is a great American, saying that in quotations, is now asking for the immediate exit of the United States. And again, Maliki stepping down was a precondition for U.S. air support in the campaign against ISIS. It was also a precondition that we would provide air support to IRGC Quds Force militias to take care of the threat, and that the threat being a Sunni one. And we're going to stay in Iraq. We can end this campaign and say ISIS is defeated, but we're going to be back. Ten-year-old Americans are going to be back in Iraq as 20-year-olds. Ask one-year-old Americans after the 9-11 attacks that are now in our military, in Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan, in Yemen, in the, in, in the Arab Peninsula, uh, in the Horn of Africa, everywhere. 
and, and our allies. Our allies' intelligence services are now looking at foreign fighter networks, ISIS networks, Al-Qaeda networks. And we have to define the threat, but we also have to come to the realization that this is never-ending. This is the new normal. We are going to continue to have to, to, to fight these types of groups, and we have to develop some sort of 30-year strategic message that we will be there until it's over in some capacity. We I want to bring Tom in uh, in just a second, but there's something that sort of strikes me in the conversation, which I think is very true, that at the time of 9-11, in some ways, it was a more, more simplistic picture at that time because we were very focused on Afghanistan. I mean, you know better than I do, very focused on Afghanistan. But as you've just detailed, really, the, the, the nature of the threat has metastasized not only in terms of groups, but also um, geographically. My question is whether this is a reflection of the strategy that we took or whether this was the natural progression of the threat. Well, I think this is the perfect segue to the point we try and make on this all the time. If you go back to 9-11, we, we think that that event and the immediate aftermath is still misunderstood to this day. And the reason is that people look at that as a, a horrific terrorist attack, which it was. But do you know what Osama bin Laden is called by the jihadis to this day? Do you know what he's actually called, the, the honorific they give him? They call him the reviving sheikh. Why do they call him the reviving sheikh? Because the idea behind 9-11 was, and it didn't pan out the way they thought it was going to, but they still got there in a lot of ways. The idea behind 9-11 was that they were going to open up the political space for jihad to expand and for the ideolo ideological belief system of jihadism within the Muslim-majority world to gain a foothold in different countries where it never had it before, and that they were going to expand their revolution. And so. You know, I agree with a lot of what Michael was saying about the state dynamic and making sure you take care of uh, approach nation states and understand what their interests are. How, the one warning I would add to that, and I think it's a big one, is that you cannot underestimate the idea that these guys are revolutionaries because they are absolutely revolutionaries. I mean, bin Laden was the reviving sheikh. You look at the world today in 2018, he's dead. But if you were to say to him, you know, on 9-11, hey, hey, you know, you're going to have jihadis, you know, carrying your, a form of your belief system all the way from West Africa to Southeast Asia and fighting all these different countries, which Catherine mentioned at the beginning, he would have taken that. And he, that's exactly was the intent behind what they were trying to pull off. And you know, when you talk about the, the revolution aspect of this, and what's the great mistake of the 2003 Iraq war, which of course I think was a strategic disaster, but here, here's the thing I would say about the 2003 war, and one of the principal reasons why it was a disaster. We didn't take seriously enough that the Sunni jihadis were going to try and build an Islamic state on Iraqi soil, even as they were saying it. So the first time, actually, that you hear that they're going to build a caliphate in Iraq, does anybody know what year it is when they actually say this? They actually say it in 2006. Abu Hamza al-Muhajir, his name is, he was a lieutenant to Ayman al-Zawahiri. He was a Zawahiri loyalist. He's the one that declared the Islamic State of Iraq. Okay? And what he said was, here today we're laying the cornerstone for the caliphate. This was an idea they took very seriously all along. We did not take it seriously. In fact, all, as recently as 2011 or 12, you can hear John Brennan, who was then the senior counterterrorism advisor for President Obama. Do you know what he said about the idea of resurrecting the caliphate? He says, we're not going to organize our counterterrorism policies on this, these are his words now, absurd, feckless delusion of resurrecting a caliphate. He said that in June 2011. It was three years later to the day that ISIS said what? We have resurrected the caliphate in Iraq and Syria. That is the power of a revolutionary movement. So yes, the nation states have to be accounted for, absolutely. But don't undersell the power of this, this, this revolutionary ideology, because that's what you're dealing with. And you have to understand exactly how they're operating and why they're operating and what they're trying to do. And just to add one more point onto this, one of the biggest misconceptions about al-Qaeda, 
This is, I mean, fundamentally wrong, folks. I'm so sick of talking about this at this point, okay? But one of the, one of the fundamental misconceptions about Al-Qaeda is that it's only interested in attacking the West. That's all they really care about. That was their principal interest. I am sorry. We have gone through Al-Qaeda's literature, their internal documents, statements, everything. You can, you can accumulate a massive evidence. Do they talk about attacking the U.S. this day? Absolutely. Does he often, does Ayman al-Zawahiri, here, the head of Al-Qaeda, say, this is a very important thing, we need to do it? Absolutely. And they want to rally people against this anti-American ideology. But then you actually look at the details, and what do they say? Oh, right. We need, to, we need to fight all of America's proxies in all these different areas. Why? Because we're resurrecting our caliphate. And they're very specific about that. That's what they say. And so when you see a group pop up in West Africa that, that says that they're Al-Qaeda and they're building an Islamic Emirate in West Africa, you've got to take it seriously. You know, they may, be, they may mean what they say if they say it in East Africa or Libya, or if you see that Ayman al-Zawahiri has his oath of allegiance. Now think about this. Ayman al-Zawahiri, does anybody know who he, the head of Al-Qaeda, has his allegiance to? Very publicly, repeatedly. Habatul Akhanzada, the Taliban's emir. In other words, the head of Al-Qaeda okay, is actually loyal to the Taliban's emir. You know why? Because they view the Taliban's Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, which they're trying to resurrect in Afghanistan, as the cornerstone of their imagined caliphate. And their whole idea is that basically, yeah, we may be taking ISIS's territorial caliphate away from them, but we're going to resurrect our own. And this in Afghanistan is going to be the, the keystone for it. So that's what Bill was talking about when he talks about the, the potential liabilities in the long term for all this. Yeah, I just want to say one thing. I, I hit her up first. <laughs> so Osama bin Laden actually warned against the establishment of a caliphate until you could defend the territory, right. feed everyone, and give everyone a job. So the one thing that was impressed me about going through the, the Osama bin Laden documents, the sensitive site exploitation after Abbottabad, was al-Qaeda has a, a review process. Uh, they, they conduct after-actions reviews. And now... The new one would be, you cannot establish a caliphate until you can shoot down American aircraft. You cannot do this, because anytime you, sir, you're going to have to turn that off. This is the third time that's happened. So can somebody take care of that? Um, the, the issue with- You asking Bill to go do it? Yeah, Bill, can, <laughs> Tom, you can go do it. Tell him he's wrong. <laughs> you keep telling me I'm wrong. Anyway, but back on this thing here. You are wrong, but yeah. Osama bin, Osama bin Laden. Conducted an extensive after-action review of what was going right and what was going wrong. Uh, they did everything they could to keep foreign fighters in Afghanistan uh, because they wanted to go to Syria because they were tired of getting killed by U.S. drones before they ever saw an American to kill. And Osama bin Laden cautioned uh, Zawahiri on moving fighters to Syria because he wanted to send scholars there to observe the movement to see who could be recruited into Al Qaeda. And this AAR process is continuing. As, as we see what al-Qaeda is doing, what Jabhat al-Nusra is doing, and ISIS is going through an after-action review as well. And they are looking at themselves and saying, we cannot declare a caliphate until we can defend it, until we can feed everybody inside it, until we can give them jobs. And they can't do that. Just one real quick point on that. Um, it's absolutely true that Osama bin Laden warned about prematurely declaring Islamic states, actually emirates, and prematurely declaring a caliphate. Um, and the, the reasoning there was that um, basically the Americans would intervene along the lines of what Michael was saying, and they would take it away from you. This is clear from the Abbottabad files that have now all been released. You can see this is the consistent warning. And so what al-Qaeda is doing is a much more long-term strategy of caliphate building, a long-term emirate building. So they do things in Yemen, for example, where they were actually implementing Sharia law just like ISIS does, right? But they weren't advertising it. 
right? So they weren't going to tell you they were doing that because they didn't want you to know how, what the extent of their governance was. And there were a few times where they made exceptions and they would put out a photo set and we were on top of it because you could see that that's what they were, that, that's what they were doing. In other words, it was for bin Laden and for al-Qaeda, it was a long-term calculation that the caliphate can't be declared um, right away until you have a stable base, you're totally ingrained within the population, and the Americans aren't going to be able to take this away from you easily. And that was the calculation. And by the way, now that ISIS has lost much of its territory, what we have already seen in the al-Qaeda messaging is, see, we told you so. That this was what, this, we told you this was going to happen. If you declare a caliphate the way you, you say, you, you, the way you did, and declare your territorial control over these states, then the Americans are going to come back. And they have a point, because here even President Obama in the previous administration, a guy who, who claimed to bring a responsible end to the Iraq war, not... He, he claimed that that was what, uh, you know, what he had done. He, even he was forced to re-intervene in, in Iraq and then in Syria to try and take ISIS caliphate away. So, uh, The last point is a key one, I think, to, about your question about whether we made it worse or, or, um, um, or, or made it or, or was a natural progression. I, I would tend more towards saying it's a natural progression, but obviously our interventions have influenced the way things have gone. But if, if you just look at the big sweep of events, in particular the, uh, the, the, the Arab Spring, you realize that the, the political order all across the region was in a state of advanced decay. And this kind of revolutionary organization that Tom is describing was, was working underground uh, to to spread its tentacles, it was it was aware of that decay and it was trying to to, to capitalize to capitalize on it. So um, the big strategic challenge for us is to put to put I, I keep repeating the same phrase, but to build the new order. Um, and 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 we have to be aware. I think um, I, I agree with all my uh, with all the panelists who say that we're we're we we keep sending a message of lack of. Uh, um, of lack of staying power and, and we're confused and so forth. But I think we have to realize that that's not going to change. It doesn't matter how much we harp on that. There's a, there's a profound ambivalence in the American public about a, a, about a, um, a, um, uh, a forward-leaning strategy in the Middle East. I think our thinking has to assume that. Um, and, and, and so the, 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 problem for, the problem for us is finding those actors who want to work with us over the long term and, and building on them. And I think that throws us back on our, it throws us back on our traditional allies. Um, the ones who throughout the Cold War look to us, uh, Israel, Saudi Arabia. Um, the problem here, the problem, Egypt, what, what, what did you say? Egypt, Jordan. Egypt. Egypt doesn't, can't be that much use to us because of the, there's the problem in the Sinai, but the, the real the real heart of the problem is this um, arc of instability from from Baghdad to Beirut. That's the. Isn't that really? I mean, I think we've been sort of talking around this idea, but that really is one of the legacies of the last ten years: is Iran's ability to establish what amounts to the Shiite crescent, right? I mean, this has been a long-term objective. And that, and and we have. It's and in just place. for a late, for a late we, person, someone explained what the, the Shiite crescent goes from Lebanon. <coughs> Syria, Iraq, and then into right, and that's and and they have they have built a, a network of proxies all all along the way, um, but there's this larger problem of a lack of order there. Um, you know, there's who who wants to go in and uh, in, in in Raqqa in, in Syria, where the, which was the capital of ISIS in Syria, and and create a sustained order there over the long term. 
Nobody wants to do that job, and the people on the ground can't do it. So we have to find the right combination of actors who will, who will be willing to do it. Um, and this, the, the, for me, one of the biggest challenges we have in this regard now is the question of Turkey. Because Turkey, Turkey is a large, significant state with a, uh, uh, with a really strong sense of itself and its purpose in, in, in the world. And it is moving out of the American orbit. So if we want to create, if we want to stabilize Syria for the long term, and we want to eliminate the safe havens of the for the terror for the terrorists there, I think it requires some kind of agreement with Turkey, or, or we have to come to the conclusion that we can't rely on the, on the Turks, and that's a, that's even a much harder that's that's a that's a much harder lift. But I I don't think we have that clearly in our mind as the strategic problem to solve at this point. And the one thing about Turkey is Turkey is our only ally that's actually advocating to empower local Sunni Arabs to push back against ISIS, to push back against the militias, to push back against al-Qaeda. And at no time during this ISIS campaign, and no time since 2009, have we empowered Sunnis to fight Sunni extremism. Sunnis to fight, like we did in the surge. Yeah, we, we reconciled groups that were affiliated with al-Qaeda, but we had unreconcilables that we killed, that we captured, that we put, as General Lamb would say, that we put in the grave. Um, but we reconciled with enough to actually decimate al-Qaeda leadership during the surge, and at no time have the Sunni Arabs of, Arabs of Syria and Raqqa and Deir ez-Zor been empowered to hold territory. Instead, we keep relying on proxies that are there for these other reasons, um, to curry favor or curry leverage by partnering with the U.S. to defeat ISIS. And now it's everything we're trying to do to keep them there to pre prevent security backslide in Syria and Iraq as the YPG looks at what we're doing west of the Euphrates or what we're not doing west of the Euphrates and wanting to go to Afrin and wanting to go to Idlib and leaving Deir ez-Zor and Raqqa open to a security backslide where ISIS is still there and still looking to do things. And worse, Shia militias are moving into these areas and repopulating these neighborhoods with Shia, lo Shia loyalists or Shia proxies. And we keep trading off enemies and allies for short-term strategic objectives that fit the narrative for transitional U.S. security officials and politicians and presidents, unfortunately. Just real quick on Turkey. I'll be uh, uh, very pessimistic on Turkey, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons. But one, one of the reasons is that, um, you know, when I held up this, this pipeline that it goes through Iran, you know where the next stop is for the Al-Qaeda guys on their way to and from the world? It's Turkey. And if you go through the bin Laden files carefully, what you see um, is that some of the reports that bin Laden was receiving was on their external operations office in Turkey, which is where they thought was going to be a nice, uh, safe place for them to launch operations in the West and Europe from. And we, in fact, uh, have, tra have tracked some of the senior al-Qaeda guys to Turkey to this day. In fact, there's a guy named Mohammed Islambouli. You may remember back in the early uh, in 1981 when um, Khalid Islambouli assassinated Anwar Sadat, the president of Egypt. Well, this is his brother. He's like royalty within Al Qaeda. You know, we used to track his Facebook page for a number of years because he was located in Istanbul, where he moved to from Iran. And we kept would would say this to American officials all the time. Hey, this is a known guy. He's identified in the Bin Laden files as a close somebody that Osama bin Laden desperately wanted to keep alive. He didn't want him in the drones kill box. This is somebody he relied on. And here he is openly operating from Istanbul. You don't have to take my word for it. Here's his Facebook page. And these types of uncomfortable relationships keep coming up, especially in the Syrian context, where you see that Turkey has not really drawn a line between um, extremists or non-extremists when it comes to the sort of rebellion in Syria, at least not initially in the initial first several years of this. 
And, you know, there's been some great reporting, including um, by BuzzFeed News, Mike's here, um, you know, about you know, some of the ISIS guys who decamped for Turkey. So this is, a big, this is a big issue in terms of the U.S. going forward, how we're going to manage this relationship and how it, whatever levers we're going to try and bring to bear to get them to draw a firmer line, I think, between, um, you know, unacceptables and, and supposed acceptables. Bill, Bill and then Michael. Oh, yeah, I wanted to make one quick point about what Iran is doing in Iraq. And I think this is probably the most underreported story in all this on the Shia side of the, this war. And think about the problems that Iran has caused by supporting Hezbollah, which it recruits from a population of about, say, about a million and a half Shia inside of Lebanon. In Iraq, you have 30-something, uh, I'm not sure what the number, it's about 60% of 36 million Shia population that they are capable to recruit from. And that's what they're doing. These it's not just one militia. It's not just a Hezbollah. They have a Hezbollah brigades. It's the Sibal Haq. It's, it's Iman Ali brigades. There's all these groups. And they're not just sticking in Iraq and doing their business there. They're sending them to Syria. That's where Assad's getting a lot of its manpower. And then we're seeing their commit. Case Kazali, for instance, the head of the Sibal Haq, he was on the Israeli border just within the last year talking about how we're going to support Hezbollah in his fight against Israel. Hezbollah has been a thorn in the side of the U.S. government and, and Israel and multiple countries. It's conducted terrorist attacks in South America. You know, to put all that in perspective and look at, look at the growth of the, the, the Shia side of this, uh, of this war. And it, it's something that should terrify us all. And it's a major reason why the, the precipitous withdrawal from Iraq, um, the desire to end the war, um, uh, with uh, in the war in Iraq by President Obama was just a massive mistake. It opened the door for for Iran to to support these groups, and you know it's something we I, I think that we're going to see the, the the deadly fruits of uh, in years to come. I, I hate to say it because I was in the Bush administration, but the the problem is bigger than the, than the, just the Obama's blind eye to Iran. Yeah, I agree. No, I don't want to because and and that's my my big point so, is yeah. that. <clears throat> is that by focusing in on the networks and ignoring the states, um, we, we, we haven't played this game very well. To me, it's amazing to, to compare our effort at building a proxy in Iraq to uh, Putin's effort to build a proxy in Syria. Now, obviously, he has, uh, you know, he's more ruthless than we are. He's willing to do things like, uh, like uh, expel Sunnis from the country in a way that we weren't. Um, but we expended how many trillions of dollars in, 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 in Iraq, and we don't really have a proxy there. And um, uh, Putin, We built a proxy for Iran. And we built a proxy for Iran, and Putin expended a fraction of that amount in, in Syria. Um, and, and he now has, and he has convinced us in, uh, in, in the way the dynamic is unf uh, unfolding to start supporting the Assad regime. If, if we sit back, I mean, the, the, the sort of... Um, the sort of, uh, uh, for me, example of what's wrong here is we are going to sit back, it looks like, and allow Assad to take Idlib. Uh, and Assad will take Idlib and, and, and we, because Idlib is full of terrorists. That's absolutely true. Uh, but he'll take, he'll, take, uh, he'll take Idlib. We'll complain about it from the sidelines like we've been doing all along with all of Assad's, as Assad has retaken um, has retaken territory, and we'll say it's a really horrible thing that's going on. But he'll win, uh, just like he won in the south, and just like he's won he's won elsewhere. And then Iran, Russia, and Assad will have um, even a better platform from for, from which to work. So clearly, 
Russia understands something about this game that that we have not that that we have not understood. And you know, in response to what Tom said about Turkey, if he said, "Okay, Turkey's Turkey's a bad actor, Iran is a bad actor," um, who are the good actors that we can work with on the ground to build an order? I, that has to be our, our question. Now, my my answer on the Turkey thing is that the Turks turned a blind eye to ISIS and to Al Qaeda to a certain extent, uh, or at least um, some activities by uh, ISIS and, and, and Al Qaeda, because of the Kurdish question, and because of the Assad question, because we were not supporting them on toppling Assad, because they were they they, they were against uh, they were against Assad, and we have supported. The rise of a of an independent Kurdish statelet, which is an existential threat to the Turkish Republic. So, if we're not going to if we're not going to cooperate with them on the issues that are of greatest concern to them, we can't expect them to have cooperation with us on the issues that are of greatest greatest concern to, to us. And if we say that every actor who's done something that we don't like or has some characteristic that we don't like is off limits, we quickly find out that we have no allies at all. To build the to build the order that we want. I'm just going to actually put a final question to people before we open it up to your questions, uh, and I'll work down the row um, from Bill uh, to Michael. So, um, in the broadest terms, what does success look like, and how do we get there? Wow. Yeah, I I I think the problem with what the uh, asking answering that question is is we we can't even discuss what success looks like or or a strategy or what our goals are until we actually define the nature of the problem. Who is our enemy? Um, is it violent extremists? Is it jihadists? Um, are we going to deal with the states that support them? Until we're, we're able to put all of this together, I can't even imagine what something like success looks like. And it's, it's horrible that 17 years after al-Qaeda launched an attack on the United States that we're, we're in this position. But yet here we are, and I, I can't answer that question. I, I do not see, remotely see success on the horizon. The only success we probably had is in Southeast Asia, in Indonesia, in the Philippines, where they've done a pretty good job. And that's because they had good, we had good actors, we had governments, stable governments that were committed to fighting this. Yet they still have their insurgencies, so that's, what, that's probably what success looks like, if, if, you're gonna, if you're gonna look at this. But, the problem is, is we don't have states that we could count on in the Middle East. We don't have local or regional actors. Like even in, with the, in the case of the Kurds that we're working with, we're dealing with the YPG is the PKK. It's, it's a fact. And the PKK is a designated terrorist group by the US. If we want to work with them, delist them from a terrorist organization. But then you see the impact of dealing with, with working with them with the, with the, Tur the Kurdish, or I'm sorry, the, the Turkish problem is Mike as Michael talked about. So we have, you know, we have to, we have to figure these things out. And I, I do not see success on the horizon in the Middle East and in, in South Asia until we can figure it out. I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't think success is anywhere close. But I, I want to say just a few, a few things on this. I mean, really, the, the, whole, the whole point here is that the political elite of America, the populace of America, the Americans have decided, as Michael has said a couple of times, you know, that we don't want to have a large footprint in the Middle East or in these different areas. Okay, I get it. That limits casualties. We don't have to worry about as many Americans being killed. That's a big factor. We don't have to worry about spending as much money. That's a big factor, right? But here's the problem. When there, are, there are costs to that, 
right? And and so part of what makes us uncomfortable is I don't I don't know exactly what the right answer is. You know, a lot of people in this town say, oh, we just have to do this, this, and this. I, I don't know, right? But all I know is that, um, you know, that yes, there are high costs to American involvement and in American entrenchment overseas in these different areas, but there are also costs to the lack of American involvement or lack of American commitment. And that's basically the, the, the defining feature here, right? I mean, you can blame you can blame the U.S. for, for launching the Iraq war in 2003 and opening the door for Iran in, inside Iraq and not committing that, also opening the door for al-Qaeda in Iraq, then eventually the Islamic State of Iraq and ISIS. You can absolutely blame the U.S. It was a, a foolhardy decision to do that, right? But then you can also blame the U.S. for getting out in 2011, you know? I mean, I, I always like to say this, you know, the, the, the one trick Ben Rhodes has, right, is he likes to point back to 2003, March 2003, the Iraq invasion, and say, see, we're just not going to do that again. Well, okay, Benny, but the world is a big, complex, complex place, and you have to play the hand you've been given, right? And by 2011, you decided that you were going to try and undo, the president was going to try and undo the 2003 decision to invade Iraq. The world doesn't work that way. You have to play the hand you've given in 2011. But what we're talking about in Afghanistan now is the same lack of will or so, same lack of commitment. You know, basically people are saying, well, we've been there 17 years. What are we going to do? We're going to be there forever? Okay, go ahead and make those arguments. Those are easy arguments to make. You know what I want those same people to recognize is what the day after an American withdrawal looks like. Well, think about it. And are you going to own the humanitarian and national security consequences of that withdrawal the day after, right? Because these people who make these arguments, they don't, right? I'm going to tell you, I don't know what the answer is to all this, but we let's make the calculations here explicit, right? What America has decided is we don't want to have a big footprint overseas. That comes with costs, bottom line. I've got the answers. Oh. <laughs> Someone asked. So, so uh, the, the key problem to solve is political order in Iraq, Syria, Lebanon. That's the key one. There are other ones, of course, Yemen as well. But that is the, the center of gravity of the fight is Syria. So one of the problems that we have is that Syria is always an afterthought for us. But for everybody in the region, the fight is centered on Syria. And the fight is the Iranian alliance system versus everybody else. Um, so what we need to do uh, is we need to think of success not as an end state, but as a dynamic process. And the, the key to the dynamic process is putting together a coalition of states who have the ability to project power beyond their borders. And if you start looking at the number of actors in the Middle East who have that, it's not that many. Really, the, key, the three key ones uh, are Israel, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey. So we want to bring them into a coalition to stabilize Syria, which means uh, attacking the Iranian alliance system and the Sunni radicals at the same time and degrade them. And it probably also means identifying the diminishment of Russian power as a, prior, as a priority. That's been difficult for the Obama administration, difficult for the Trump administration. Um, but certainly eliminating Iran from Syria is, a, is, is the key one. Unless we say that we're going to get rid of Iran, we're not going to get the buy-in from everybody else to go after ISIS as well. We have to do, we have to do the two things simultaneously, and we have to do it with, we have to do it with allies because we can't do it, our, uh, do it ourselves. That's the, that, if we could get that, and that's a, that's a huge lift. We don't have it at all. If we could get that, that is the, that is the essential prerequisite to any kind, anything that anyone would define as success in the region. What success uh, looks like, uh, president's got to get away from this. Uh, President Obama didn't want his own war in Iraq and Afghanistan, yet he got one. President Trump told his national security team, don't give me my own war in Iraq and Syria, and he has one. 
we don't get to decide what our enemies do, but we have to develop a capability to deal with our enemies. And as we get away from the 160,000 American footprint on, on the ground, that's always the argument. Like you said, Ben Rhodes says that. Well, we're not going to go with 100,000. It's either do nothing or deploy 100,000 soldiers. There's from A to Z. But as we continue to use proxy forces, we use proxy forces in Iraq to defeat ISIS. We outsourced U.S. military might to Shia sectarian actors on the ground that said that neighborhood is ISIS, and we destroyed it. And, and when I say that, I am a former military guy, but I'm also a counterinsurgency guy. And you don't drop a 500-pound bomb on a sniper position when there are 60 civilians in that same building where that sniper is. Um, it's a precision strike, yes, but the consequences of using certain munitions just basically breeds new insurgents for us to fight 10 years down the road. So this is how you define success. You build up the US special operations capability. You build up our intelligence uh, capability to where we don't have these, these gaps in intel, where we don't have these shadows where enemies can grow, because we're, we're fo too focused on highly classified signal intelligence and highly classified uh, CIA human reports. As we continue to use proxy forces, it's important that anybody we embed with a proxy force speaks the language, understands the culture, understands the political dynamics of that force we're working with. So when you hear a nuanced statement in that language um, that says, they're all ISIS, or they're all this, you, you stop it. Because you do not put US still on target without US intel verifying that it's ISIS, and without US eyes on the ground saying it's ISIS, or Al-Qaeda, whatever enemy we're targeting. Uh, we are getting away from deploying divisions and brigades and battalions to fight terrorists. We're now behind what Iran and China, or correction, Russia and China are doing in the conventional military space. Success looks like using the U.S. $20 trillion economy against Iran's $400 billion economy. Matt has said behind every problem in the Middle East, you find Iran. We have to use the U.S. $20 trillion economy against Russia's $1.9 trillion economy. We need to act like a superpower. And that doesn't mean divisions on the ground, but it means uh, increase intel, increase our special forces capability to fight, fight this terrorist fight, and tell our proxies on the ground that we're there. You don't say you're going to have a surge and then tell the enemy when it's going to end. Our enemy is a chess player. Our enemy can wait 20 years. We think everything is on a one-year, 18-month, two-year timeline. Our enemy says, thank you. You look at the Iran deal, the Iran deal was at, what, 15 years until they could actually have a nuclear weapon? And it's 2015, and that was, that's conservative. They're, they're, they were actually able to move at any moment if they wanted to with a six-month breakout time. But we basically put into the Iran deal that you won't have this capability until 2022. It's four years from now. You know, that's not a long, that's, that's for conventional arms. And by 2025, using that thinking, the American clock versus our enemy's clock, it, it just causes, causes these problems. So success has to be defined on American intel and special operators looking at the enemy's clock and adjusting to that clock and telling our allies that we are here for the long-term strategic chess game as opposed to what we've been doing. Because again, 9-11 happened 17 years ago. There are 18-year-old Americans still fighting what has been created, whether by mistake, whether by, you know, organically based on our policies and our enemies' uh, strategic goals. But we have more enemies now than we had after 9-11. And that's okay. We just have to be able to, to, to fight those enemies the right way. Okay, so we have time for a couple of questions. Um, if I ask you uh, 
stand, wait for the microphone. I think there's one uh, in the room. And yeah, identify yourself. Is there one in the room? Uh, identify yourself and try and keep your question um, uh, succinct. Uh, this gentleman right here in the Navy tie. Hi, Wesley Jeffries, New America Foundation. Uh, we've heard quite a bit about our difficulties with Turkey and Pakistan. What about Qatar? Sorry, what was that? Qatar. Qatar. Who would like to take that? Well, we shouldn't let Qatar be the bar in Star Wars where everyone can go in and, and, and plan these things and then disrupt the whole Middle East and North Africa. Uh, we need to look at what Qatar's doing financially. Uh, the one thing about, you know, as we look at uh, Qatar support, to certain groups, you look at uh, adventurists in Saudi Arabia and other places, uh, you know, three degrees removed from the royal family that continue to support these groups by saying, who wants to fight Assad? And then five jihadist groups raise their hands and money goes to them, and they say, inshallah, you'll do the right thing. We've got to get away from that. Uh, Qatar, again, needs to stop being the bar in Star Wars. Uh, question from the lady, please, in the purple. Hi, Faith McDonald from the Institute on Religion and Democracy. And uh, my question is, um, we talked about the blackout on intelligence and the idea of senior um, U.S. government people and senior country officials. And to me, a perfect uh, example of that right now is what we have done with Sudan and that we are normalizing relations with Sudan. And I would like to know what you all think about the fact that Sudan's former head of intelligence, national intelligence and secret service, is now at the Charge d'Affaire here at the, US or the Sudan embassy in the U.S. Well, I, I probably need to get a whole file from you, Faith, on what's going on with Sudan. But uh, yeah, yeah, because I don't follow the politics as much. But I'll, I'll just—I mean, as a nerd, I'll just say this one thing, right? I'll just check in here. Maybe yeah, there's there you go. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, the, but you know, I'll just say this. You know, we've been studying Al Qaeda for so long, okay? And it's just amazing to me that people have still not learned what Al Qaeda was doing in Sudan throughout the first half of the 1990s still don't understand it, right? People still haven't even processed what the 9-11 Commission found about what they were doing in Sudan, their big tent version of jihadism, and the networks and the links that they built there and how they sort of developed this whole process. Um, it just, it, it's an endless source of frustration. You know, we just passed, in August, we had the 20th anniversary of the U.S. Embassy bombings, which it was, the, the original ideas for that, right, were actually constructed while Al-Qaeda was in the Sudan. And people don't even realize this is in the 9-11 Commission report, that what Osama bin Laden decided to do was he and al-Qaeda decided they were going to go to Iran and Hezbollah, and they were going to ask, how did you do those bombings in 1983 in Lebanon that made the Americans retreat? And Iran and Hezbollah said, now this is a 9-11 commission report, folks, right? Iran and Hezbollah said, sure, we'll give you the tactical expertise you need to do that, right? And just search, download the PDF for the 9-11 commission report, search on tactical expertise, you'll find it, right? And the point is, is that these types of things, which are basic facts, I, we still argue with people over whether or not that happened, okay, in 2018, when the bombings took place in 1998, and people are still not processing basic facts of what happened in terms of these operations. So that didn't answer your question at all, but I got to make my point on Sudan. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the problems, my name is Richard Chasdy. Okay. Um, one of the problems uh, I, I think that, that 
talking about good allies and Duterte and uh, the actions in Marawi and uh, the difficulty in terms of defeating the Mate. Well, good allies, yeah, I mean, yeah. Okay. Yeah, right. Um, part of the problem, though, and I was wondering if you could comment on this, is uh, in terms of the, uh, any sort of vetting process for proxies uh, for the Obama administration, the Trump administration, to put together vis-a-vis uh, the Free Syrian Army, for example, or, or uh, the, one of the problems is, is so many of the groups that we think is more secular groups, uh, such as the Free Syrian Army, have these ad hoc relationships with, oh, there are over a thousand different paramilitary organizations in Syria. And, and I think, could you comment on that, sort of the problem in terms of putting together proxies, given that the, the complexion of the battle arena is such that these ad hoc relationships that Charles Lister, among others, talks about is, is, is predominant? Yeah, so Bill and I have been in the trenches on that issue for a long time because there was a lot of whitewashing of what was going on in the Syrian rebellion. And we, you know, Assad is a monster, and we're certainly we're not going to carry any water for him. And you won't hear, hear us do that at, at any point in time. I mean, the guy's a total genocidal maniac and, you know, cr- creates all sorts of problems with his relationships with Iran and Russia along those lines. But, you know, you talk about the Free Syrian Army. For example, there's no hierarchy or chain of command for the Free Syrian Army. What you're dealing with are a bunch of sort of localized groups that carried the Free Syrian Army brand. They weren't ever some national force that was sort of a, a unique pipeline for the, for the Americans to put sort of, uh, you know, weaponry and funds and training into, and then they could take the fight to Assad on behalf of quote-unquote moderates. That system was never set up. I mean, it was always very ad hoc. And so one of the things that we um, documented very carefully in Long War Journal is that a lot of times you know, a group would receive American arms, and you can even see reporting this in, in the New York Times, for example, you know, the Syrian Revolutionaries Front. There was a guy who would fire American-made anti-tank missiles, right? The Syrian Revolutionaries Front wasn't jihadi, it wasn't al-Qaeda, it wasn't extremist. In fact, eventually they ended up fighting with Jabhat al-Nusra and got wiped out. Um, but what happened was that al-Qaeda figured out, Jabhat al-Nusra figured out that, okay, you're going to go get these weapons, these anti-tank weapons, we're going to show you where to go fire that, and then you're going to get out of the way when we take over the town. And that happened over and over and over again. And, and the point about Syria that's very difficult for people to understand is the, one of the reasons why Assad, to, to your point earlier, about has an easier time of it in Syria is because he can match his political objectives with his military objectives much more easily than we can, right? Because he doesn't care. He's got a genocidal maniac. That's who he wants to install in power. Go for it, right? That's what he, he doesn't care, right? Whereas we don't have a sort of prominent actor on the ground to Syria that we can, that we can sort of stand up as governance. I mean, you talk about Idlib. You know, the dominant actor in Idlib right now is Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, which was openly al-Qaeda until 2016. And the story is very complicated, actually, about what happened there with the dispute between Jelani, the head of Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, and al-Qaeda. And actually, the, the U.S. government and the U.N. had both said that they still consider it a Syrian, uh, an affiliate of al-Qaeda, all the, even after all the disputes, because there's all sorts of activity going on that we're not seeing. Be that as it may, there was a very big leadership dispute there. They're the dominant actor in Idlib. Whether they're al-Qaeda or not, they're certainly extremists, and their leader says we're going to follow an extremist agenda. And that's what I'm talking about, where we can't easily match up our political objectives on the ground with military objectives. If they were something more resembling a moderate force, right, you know, well, fine, it's easy then, right? But it isn't easy, and that's part of the problem. And so we didn't want to let, we've decided we weren't going to let people sort of whitewash what was really going on with that, you know? Um, one quick point. This problem has existed since the beginning of the war. Battle of Tora Bora, we enlist a couple of militias to help root out Al-Qaeda from the mountains. They helped, them, they helped Al-Qaeda slip away. And you know, we, we have been unable to identify who are good and bad actors or good, oh, bad actors and bad, good actors. <laughs> I mean, we, you know, think about it. If we were able to snuff out 
bin Laden and Zawahiri and many of the fighters and, and leaders, they become prominent leaders across Al-Qaeda's network across the globe. How different may this war have been if we had committed 101st and 82nd Airborne and 10th Mountain Division and, and decided to take care of this problem on our own. Instead, we had to go with this Rumsfeldian, you know, light footprint strategy. Well, that again, you know, there's costs to everything. And that cost was bin Laden survived for 10 years and was able to direct the network. And here we are today. Um, as the moderator, I'm going to take the last question because we're uh, pretty much out of time. Um, uh, 17 years ago, I was uh, at Ground Zero covering 9 11. And I have to say what I think is a measure of some success is the fact that we have not had another large-scale mass casualty attack inside the United States. And that was something that I think we all anticipated would happen. I'm not minimizing the attacks that have occurred, but we have not had um, another 9-11. And I'd like each of you just as a closing thought, a closing thought rather, um, why you think we've been able to do that. I definitely think we've gotten better at our security, you know, internally and understanding. And and, um, and fight, taking the fight to the enemy overseas has helped force them to focus on survival. Um, that being said, um, you know, if our goal in this war is to just stop them from conducting attacks here, you know, uh, I think we've succeeded in some ways with that. Again, we've had a lot of smaller-scale attacks, and none of those are acceptable. And, and look, if the fact is that the enemy could... They would, they, you know, Bin Laden said, if I could have killed 30,000 or 300,000 or 3 million on 9-11, I'd have done that too. And that happened because of their ability to organize and train their training camps and these networks and relationships. And so while we have gotten better at our security inside this country, outside the problem has expanded and it's exploded and it's created conditions for something like that to possibly happen in the future. Yeah, I mean, there's a million things I can say, but I'll just say one about that, right? There's no doubt that our defenses have gotten better and numerous plots have been stopped. And these guys aren't the 10-foot ogre either, right? I mean, they make all sorts of mistakes and they, all the time in terms of the plotting. You know, they, they have a lot of doofuses on their side, which we should be very thankful for, you know. Um, but, but by the same token, one of the interesting dynamics in all this is that al-Qaeda, there are multiple pieces of evidence that in the last several years, in particular since the Arab Spring, that an order came down from on top saying, don't attack the U.S. at this point in time. In fact, you can see, you know, the, the HIPSI has talked about this in the House Intelligence, some of the intelligence they've talked about. We've seen it in some of the stuff we've collected open source online from al-Qaeda sources, where they talk about the fact that, you know, sort of there was a deprioritization on that. Because, you know, as the KGB used to say during the Cold War, the world was going their way. Right? They thought that they were opening up the jihadi revolution, that the, the, the legacy of the reviving sheikh was playing out, and basically why sort of jeopardize that? You know? And they were very happy in some ways to let ISIS have a go at us. And I still think it's, you're talking about low probability events here, but I would be very careful um, going through a lot of the primary source evidence we have for the, through the years. We've seen that al-Qaeda has regenerated its external, external operations arm numerous times. And um, I would be very careful with any assessment that says that they are no longer have the ability or the intent to attack the West. Um, I think there are multiple indications that they are certainly going to try. We, we've gotten a lot um, more aware of the problem. I'm, I'm, we were so remarkably unaware at the time. I mean, we had 19 guys who came to America and went to flight school and only wanted to learn how to take off yeah, and didn't right. want to learn how to <laughs> land. 
That and, and nobody thought, wow, isn't that weird? Why would they? How come they? How come they don't want to learn how to land a plane? Uh, so we're we, we woke up to that, and we've hardened our defenses, and we have this incredible counterterrorism apparatus. When you know, when when it, it's an amazing thing when the United States decides that somebody is an out and out enemy, and it wants to do something about it, and everybody's in agreement. We have awesome power. The Stan McChrystal's uh, Stan McChrystal's counterterrorism operation in Iraq when it was humming, you know, when it was um, firing on all cylinders was, was amazing. The different intelligence platforms combined with the operations night after n night. After night. Um, but where I think we have really fallen down, as all of us have said, is um, um, coming up with a long-term strategic vision of where we want to go with this. We have these great tools, and they've had some, uh, some incredible successes. But they can't bring it home. They're not, we're not going to defeat them with these, with these tools. We have to have um, a, a political, military, larger strategy that has eluded us. And um, unfortunately, I think it's going to continue to elude us because we're, we're so confused about what we're doing I mean, as, a, as a country. We've made um, terrorist leadership be afraid to pick up a cell phone. Uh, one of the biggest issues uh, for jihadists in Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, for them was anytime they picked up a cell phone, they were, they were drone strikes. They, got, they, got, they became afraid of this US capability. And they also ascribed some sort of brilliance to our campaign in that when we go to Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, we, we screw it up so bad that nobody can take it over again. <laughs> that, that they can actually, they can, actually they, can, they can operate in this area, but they have to focus on the internal fight. We, we have them focused internally on what we're doing. And anytime they try to put an external op together, they're always worried about how to communicate. But now they're moving into the cyber arena, and that's where we're, we're hurting. We need, we need to, to be focused on the messages are no longer going to be cell phones. They do rolling meetings. They meet in person. But we have key leadership changing locations every night because they're afraid they're going to be targeted. We have Baghdadi changing mattresses every night, throwing away SIM cards every day, doing these things, and we need to keep senior leadership doing that. But at the same time, as we talk about this, this incredible counterterrorism capability we have, we need to mirror what the FBI is doing in the United States externally. But the FBI is brilliant at being able to find out these jihadists that want to do things and actually believe, make them believe they're join, joining an al-Qaeda cell or a jihadist, jihadist cell in order to keep 9-11 attacks from happening or high-profile attacks in the United States, high-casualty-producing attacks in the United States. So key to continuing this, and again, we have a very strategic enemy. I, I would not feel comfortable that we haven't been attacked in 17 years because it could happen at any time. Uh, we were blind before 9-11. Uh, a lot of the things that should have, we shouldn't have been blind to, like the, the pilot training that was taking place. But this enemy is strategic, and we need to ramp up our intel and special oper operations capability and our knowledge of culture and language to be able to counter this. Our FBI, the people that are recruiting people are actually from their country, speak the language, are actually Middle Eastern, are actually from these countries. And I'm from El Paso, Texas, and I was taught Arabic and told to be an operator in Baghdad. I kind of stand out, you know. We need to recruit people that look like the, the enemy. And the FBI does a great job of doing that. Uh, we, we believe that US military is plug and play. We had the all-hands program in Afghanistan where we were supposed to teach people how to speak Pashto, all these different languages, and put them into the, to the population and rotate them out every four months. 
and continue this this uh, capability, and instead they were told, needs of the Army, you're now going to be in an operations center developing PowerPoint slides for something you're, you weren't trained to do. And that's one of, one of our problems is we, we look at the 50-meter target, and we need to continue to look at the 50-meter target, but also the 1,000-meter target. Hey, I'd like to thank all of you for being here today and being invested in uh, national security. I'd like to thank the panelists for participating. I'd like to thank the Hudson Institute for the uh, opportunity uh, to be part of the conversation. Thank you. Thanks.